you will have suspected by now, I think, that the service theme this morning is about certainty. This reflection is from a sermon called A Word for Certainty by Unitarian Universalist Minister Reverend Tom Belote. I want to suggest, he writes, that we can think of certainty as having two opposites. We might think that one of the opposites of certainty is a kind of doubt that is oppositional, even antagonistic. The other opposite of certainty is humility. The practice of declared agnosticism, of declared uncertainty, can produce some good fruit. The most notable of these is the humility that results when agnosticism is well done. On the other hand, uncertainty has its limitations. It can stifle inquiry. If we deny that any conclusion can be reached, then why bother to search at all? Last week, he writes, I went to go hear theologian and emergent Christianity leader Brian McLaren deliver an address. Allow me to paraphrase what he had to say about certainty. The terrorists who flew planes into the towers had a lot of certainty. They were certain that what they were doing was not only morally defensible, but righteous. They were certain that they would go to heaven and God would give them a big high five and say great job and reward them with a multitude of virgins. No one's ever offered me that. McLaren then went on to say that there is also such a thing as too much doubt. There are people who wake up in the middle of the night and think, do I exist? Am I real? How do I know that I am not the dream of the person sleeping in the house next door? Too little certainty doesn't crash planes into buildings. Too little certainty doesn't kill directly. But too much doubt can paralyze. Please join me in singing hymn number 352, Find a Stillness.
Reverend David. Good morning. It's such a joy to be with you all this morning. I want to thank Reverend Phyllis and Reverend John and your Board of Trustees for inviting me to come be with you all this morning. It is, it is my great joy. And I, I just want to say this. This isn't in what I normally say. You cannot understand and get the power of all of the youth that are in this community until you see it. I had heard about it, but I had not seen it until this morning. So, amen. So this is a reading um, from a, a, a Zen Buddhist teacher, an American Zen Buddhist teacher named Shunru Suzuki, who was the founder of the American Zen school known as the White Plumasanga. And I happen to have been part of that lineage. Here is, it's from a Dharma talk that he gave in the 1970s. He said this, I discovered that it is necessary, absolutely necessary, to believe in nothing. That is, we have to believe in something that has no form and no color. Something which exists before all forms and all colors appear. This is a very important point. No matter what God or doctrine you believe in, if you become attached to it, your belief will be based more or less in a self-centered idea. You strive for a perfect faith in order to save yourself, but it will take time to attain such a perfect faith. You will be involved in an idealistic practice. In constantly seeking to actualize your ideal, you will have no time for composure. But if you are always prepared for accepting everything we see as something appearing from nothing, knowing that there is some reason why a phenomenal existence of such and such form and color appears, then at that moment you will have perfect composure. So once someone knows that you're a Unitarian Universalist, there is almost always an inevitable question. One that's difficult for many of us to answer. You're smiling, you know what it is. So what do you Unitarian Universalists believe? Over the years, I've had many different answers to this question. I've, I've talked about the seven principles as being something we believe, about inherent worth and interdependence. I've responded to this question by stating the historical Unitarian and Universalist Christian beliefs in the unity of God and in the salvation of all. I especially do that with my military chaplaincy colleagues. I've talked about our history and I've, I've told the old Unitarian joke that Unitarians believed in the motherhood of God, the sisterhood of humanity, and the neighborhood of Boston. I've also shared that old universalist joke, that universalists believe that God is too good to damn anyone to hell, and that universal, Unitarians believe they are too good to be damned. <laughs> so why do we retreat into such jokes at such a question? Because it is a hard, difficult question for Unitarian universalists to answer. Even those of us who have been to seminary and wear a stole. Because we are not really about belief. In a world where religion and beliefs are treated as almost synonyms, 
We are a countercultural religious movement. So moving here from Southern California to serve as your new district executive, I've done a lot of letting go. Sunshine, I'm just kidding. <laughs> when I sat down to think a while ago about all that I've let go of in my life, I remembered a day in the first few weeks of my ministerial internship at the Unitarian Church of Evanston, Illinois, when I was riding in a car with my internship supervisor, the Reverend Barbara Peskin. Barbara was telling me about another young seminarian she had met who had been interested in studying with her as an intern. When I asked Barbara why she had chosen me and not him, she said, well, he just knew so much. I was afraid I wouldn't be able to teach him anything. Now I should go ahead and admit it, I love to know things, especially things about church. I read research studies on church. I read books on church finance with relish. I go to lectures and workshops and now lecture and give workshops on church dynamics. I both love and teach about church governance, about how churches make decisions. I'm currently reading, for the third time, a sociological study on the trends of congregational religion in America since World War II. Anybody wants to join me in a book group, let me know. Whenever one of my dear colleagues hears about all the books on church life and business and dynamics that I'm reading... She usually rolls her eyes at me and says, well, better you than me. And then that's why we have a district executive. So I love to know things, especially about church. And that's why I think there's something else that I know. I think I now know that there was not another young seminarian who had come to Reverend Barbara Peskin, my internship supervisor, I think the young man who knew so much, who she wondered if she would be able to teach anything to, was me. I think that was Barbara's way to see if I could let go of enough of what I thought I knew so that I could actually learn. I've talked about two terms this morning that are close in meaning but are not the same thing. And I think I need to, to close the gap a little bit between them. Believing and knowing. The difference is more subtle than we might realize. My working definition of belief is that it is a type of knowing in which a person has invested some of their own identity. It is something held to be true that if it were not true, would in some way alter how that person understands themselves and the communities they are involved in. Do you all understand that? Does that land a little bit? I find this is often true when I work with my military chaplain colleagues, that there are things that they believe that if it changed would fundamentally change how they understand themselves. This is why we must always be cautious when we're working with things that someone believes, especially when we may not agree with them. When touching on beliefs, we are touching on not just a fact, a fact that a person thinks is true, that if we could show them a different fact was true, they would accept that and agree with us. No, when we're talking about beliefs with one another, what we're really talking about is our identities. 
the line between believing and knowing is actually not as clear as I'm making it out to be. There are things we know that we invest our identities in, and there are things that humans have built into our identity since the dawn of time. The first cave woman to invent fire probably became humanity's first expert. And I really do believe it was a woman. It's entirely too useful. (laughs) Whenever you needed fire, you called her. And she handed down that important information by teaching another and another. Knowledge is power amongst human beings. When you go to the hospital, it is the doctors who have the most power because they have most of the knowledge, although I know some charge nurses who would disagree with that statement. In a church, some of our power of the expert falls upon the minister. When you need your car fixed, you're often subject to the power of the mechanic because they are the expert in all the thousands of things that could go wrong and how to fix them. Many of the things we know are the sources of both our identity in this world and a source of power in this world. So when those things we know are brought into question, when those things we know are brought into doubt, things we believe, either by us or by others, is there any wonder that such questioning and such doubt can often feel like an attack? Is it any wonder why human beings often feel comfortable around people who believe and know many of the same things that they do? I said in a sermon recently that one of the things I believe is that Unitarian Universalism is one of the most difficult religious traditions that one can aspire to. And I really do believe that. There is some of my identity as a human being tied up into that belief, that understanding of our faith tradition. One of the reasons I believe that Unitarian Universalism is a difficult religious path to trod is because our faith, at its best, should not let us rest on unchallenged, unquestioned, and unexamined beliefs. No matter how expert we may be, no matter how much our identity may be vested in an idea, part of the religious practice of being a Unitarian Universalist is the constant evaluation of what we think we know to see if it still remains in tune with our values, our principles, and what we know of existence. Now this is one of those moments in a sermon when I look around and I see faces in a congregation that seem to be saying, Really? To be a Unitarian Universalist, I need to question everything I believe all of the time? I don't think I can do that. And, well, you're right. None of us can. We human beings are simply not wired that way. It's not an ideal that any of us can ever achieve. Mark Twain, I think, perhaps said it best. In his essay, What is Man?, He held up the ideal of the permanent seeker of truth as an ideal, something that he had searched his whole life for, both within and without, and he had never found. He said that many people begin as seekers of truth, but over time, the quest becomes long and tedious, and so they find a comfortable place of some beliefs, and they stop, and they build those beliefs into a shack that they can live in, and spend the rest of their lives propping that shack up, patching its leaks, and praying it doesn't cave in on them. 
You got to love Twain's imagery, right? And we grow so attached to our shacks of belief and of knowledge that we build to live in. It is a place of comfort and of safety. A place where the things we know and believe are not challenged. In fact, we sometimes find a group of people who believe as we do, and we can turn that little shack into a house that doesn't leak. If we find even more people who believe as we do and share our knowledge, we can turn that house into a castle or a fortress and then, or a television news channel <laughs> and then dare those who disagree with us to attack our knowledge and beliefs all they want to. The modern term for this is siloization or groups of knowledge and beliefs forming their own little silos that protect those inside the silo from encountering any views that might challenge their basic assumptions, knowledge, or beliefs. We can all name some of these kinds of silos and echo chambers, can't we? I mean, I love to get my news from MSNBC, personally. I just, I do. And most especially from Rachel Maddow. I've been a fan of her since her early days on Air America when she was about the only real news source for what was happening for my friends in Iraq. I also just have a soft spot in my heart for snarky gay women. <laughs> Give them a doctorate in political science and an expertise in making mixed drinks and you have my perfect friend. <laughs> and yet I know... I know that one of the reasons I watch her show just about every day is because she shares many of my basic assumptions, opinions, and beliefs. She's in my silo, and I'm comforted by that. When we are not at our best, our Unitarian Universalist churches can also become a silo. Another echo chamber where we are comforted by being around people who share some of our beliefs, who hold similar knowledge, and who do not challenge our basic assumptions. I'm not saying that this comfort, this sharing of beliefs and values, or, or even assumptions, is a bad thing in our congregations. We need that bond in order to be comfortable with one another, to feel safe enough with one another, to grow into community. But that comfort is not an end into itself. It is a means to an end. The purpose of church is not for us to be comfortable. It is for us to be able to grow spiritually into the most realized human being we can be and then through that transformation of our personal growth then help transform the world. One of my priorities as your district executive is to help our congregations to get out of their silos, at least some of the time to have leaders and members sharing their values and ideas with other, let's start with, let's start small, to have us sharing those ideas with other Unitarian Universalists who sit in other pews on Sunday morning. Checking their assumptions amongst all of us from different congregations. One of my, the joys of my ministry is that I'm with a different Unitarian Universalist congregation just about every Sunday morning. More than that, I'm with about four to six congregations a week and have about, I don't know how many I talk to on the phone. Um, I drive about 2,000 miles a month between our churches. 
the 71 congregations of our district. Whether it's district assembly or the worship arts festival or leading, attending a healthy congregations workshop, my mission is to get congregations working together, helping one another. One of the most important ways that I think we can do this is something called the Chalice Letter Program. Has anybody ever heard of it? Anybody Chalice Letters out there? It warms my heart. Which is a program where small donations of $20, of 20 or so dollars a couple times a year allows to support major projects by our congregations, such as new staffing or a major facility change in several congregations a year. Because I believe that if we remain small pockets of Unitarian Universalists, then even the largest congregations, really, the largest congregations we have when compared to the rest of society are small pockets of Unitarian Universalists. If we remain in, our, in these small pockets, then we will never be able to be the interdependent web that we claim to be. And we will never be able to achieve the world made whole that is the vision our faith tradition sets before us. So I began this sermon with a question that we Unitarian Universalists receive all the time. And that is, so what do you Unitarian Universalists believe? In many ways, the entire sermon up to this point has been my preparing you for the answer that I now give. My answer to the question is this. Unitarian Universalism is not about what we believe. It's about how we believe. Unitarian Universalists might believe many different things about God or about the meaning of life or about the nature of the universe or even, believe it or not, about politics. What binds us together is not what we believe, but rather how we come to those beliefs, how we hold those beliefs. And in a way that is very different from much of the rest of the world. For us, no answer is ever final. We realize that we can only ever see a little part of all that is truth. We accept that we always have to question the things we think we know and be willing to change our beliefs about things when experience shows us otherwise. And in accepting the truth, that truth is larger than any one of us. We come together in religious communities to learn from one another, to grow together, and from that community to participate in the transformation of the world. And beyond the walls of any congregation, I believe that we are called to practice this faith tradition together. Now perhaps you can see some of why I say that I believe that Unitarian Universalism is one of the most difficult religious practices that anyone can aspire to. And it really is that. I think of Unitarian Universalism as a religious practice in the same way that Zen Buddhists view Zazen meditation as a practice. It is a way of engaging life, belief, knowledge, and truth with the spirit of a seeker. It sets Mark Twain's ideal as our, Mark Twain's ideal as our possibility. The permanent seeker of truth that never that accepts that none of us will ever, alone or in community, ever actually catch the truth that we seek. 
the practice requires that we cherish our doubts. Not just allow for doubts, but cherish our doubts as signposts to deeper meaning. It requires that we come together and share our quest for belief, knowledge, and understanding in religious community. I'm not certain you can be a Unitarian Universalist alone. It is a practice that requires that we get out of our silos and listen as open-heartedly as we can to those who disagree with us. Which is why, from time to time, someone who is writing with me to a retreat or a conference has to occasionally put up with conservative talk radio. (sighs) Or why I make the commitment to read at least five articles from the Wall Street Journal every week as part of my personal practice, as hard as it is. Learning not to get angry at them and really listen has been one of the greatest challenges of my life. Why do I get angry? Because part of me wants to be in my own silo, feels threatened by them. To do that, to not get angry, to really listen, requires that I be willing to admit that my very liberal and progressive beliefs are not gospel truth, with a capital T. That there may be something of value for me in listening to what others may have to say and letting it shift me as it can. This is not letting go of what I know, it's allowing what I know to not become so rigid that it turns into a fundamentalism. Beginning to see what I mean by Unitarian Universalism as a practice? So I want to close with a story, one that is very personal to me and to my life. It's about my father. You see, I did not learn this about silos and about being willing to listen to people who disagree with me. I didn't learn that from seminary. I learned it from my dad. Now, my father was slightly to the political and religious right of Attila the Hun. Those are his words, not mine. (laughs) And he would say it when he would say that. He'd say it with this little mischievous Tennessee grin, you know. He grew up in the hills of East Tennessee, and, and to be quite frank, he did not have the best beliefs about people of color. In fairness, he did not always have nice things to say about a lot of other people as well, including progressives and liberals, as he would call us, pinko communists. When we were in Hawaii, my father was a master sergeant in the U.S. Army. He was assigned to work with a major who was a a large, strong-willed, proud black man. Not just work with him, Major Carter was his boss. And yes, they were Major Carter and Sergeant Pyle, for those of you of a certain generation. (laughs) You might get that. They worked together every day. They depended upon one another. And over time, they trusted one another. And I saw my father change. I don't know all the conversations that happened. I do know that Major Carter spoke with my father about growing up in an inner city in Detroit. And that my father saw that though they might have grown up in different areas, that their lives had not been all that different. Him in Appalachian poverty. Major Carter in urban poverty. Both had come out of that poverty, both loved their country, both had a commitment to the work that they were doing together. It was in that time that I was with a group of my friends, and I I repeated one of the racist jokes that I heard my father tell. My father was not far away, and he heard me say it. 
I'll never forget that he walked up to me, grabbed me by the lapel of my shirt, and pulled me around to face him. He said, I know you heard that from me. But let me tell you something. I expect you to be better than me. I expect you to grow up to be better than I am. Even I can change. So that's the last time I ever want to hear you say something like that about someone who is black. Do you hear me? So may it be. Blessed be. And amen.